You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jarek Warren. Jarek is a mobile engineer and lover of all things tech and medicine. He graduated from Oakwood University with a BS in biology and chemistry and eventually set his sights on becoming a physician. He was later admitted to Howard University College of Medicine. But upon entering such a cutthroat advanced degree program, Jarek had the experience that many 26ers have. It was much more competitive than what he was used to. After struggling during his first year, he was dismissed from Howard altogether. But he didn't give up. Jarek earned a master's degree with a focus on biostatistics and epidemiology. And in an unprecedented move, Howard later readmitted him. This time around, Jarek excelled academically, but faced unimaginable loss personally. While pursuing his MD, he lost three members of his immediate family to illness. Despite experiencing such trauma, he somehow managed to stay the course at Howard. Now, by this point, you might be saying, but wait, he's an engineer. That is correct. After persevering through so much hardship to pursue his dream of being a doctor, Jarek traded a career in medicine for a career in tech. He learned to code, moved cross-country, and started his engineering career at a cryptocurrency exchange. Needless to say, Jarek's journey has been everything but traditional. But what you might find most shocking about his story is that he managed to remain grounded in his faith through it all. And I will let him tell you how. Please take a listen and enjoy. Jared, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to have you here. <laughs> and I'm like really excited because of the way that I found you. Mm-hmm. Like, so to Marcus, as people who listen to the show regularly know, mm-hmm. he does a lot of the recon and finding guests. We get referrals and people reach out to me and say, sure. you should contact this person. Or I meet somebody randomly and I think they would be a good guest. But this was like purely just... In, like coincidental. I'm just on the internet seeing what's going mm-hmm. on in tech and the startup world as a former startup lawyer. And um, I came across this interview Man. that you did. And I looked at your LinkedIn, even though you curved me, and didn't respond. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, Sorry about that. But no, totally understand. But no, you responded to DeMarcus, so it was yeah. all good. Um, but it literally was like a shot in the dark. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to see if if he sees this message. Um, and now here you are yeah, on yeah, the yeah. show. No, I, I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to your podcast, and I know that you highlight uh, people coming from different areas, um, people are, who are committed to community service, business entrepreneurs. Um, and so I'm just... It's static. Yes. This is going to be, this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a very good one. So let's get into it. Sure. Who is Jarek Warren? Who is Jarek Warren? Um, So I'm a lover of health. Mm -hmm. I'm a lover of tech. That's really where my brain really resides. Those two things, the two loves, they fight all of each other. Um, I went to medical school, but now I'm a software engineer at a cryptocurrency exchange in Manhattan. And so on my free time, I actually blend health and tech together, mm-hmm. helping doctors and hospitals work in their systems, make apps for them and everything like that. Um, but that's why I am professionally. Personally, I'm a father. I'm mm-hmm. a Christian. Um, and I'm a good friend. I just like to have a good time. And I can tell by your smile that you're just like a jovial guy. Yeah, man. Like to have fun, for sure. Love have fun. <laughs> Tons of friends, easygoing, you know, just I, I, I enjoy life. Mm-hmm. So I, there's a lot to unpack there already. Just the, <laughs> the health and tech piece and yeah. going to school for medicine and then being a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get there, let's go all the way back. Let's do it. 
Tell me about your upbringing and how you came to decide that medicine was the first career path that you wanted to be on. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a small town of about a thousand people in Southwest Michigan. My parents were teachers. Um, my mom was an English teacher. My father was an English professor. But there was nobody in my family that like that did science. Mm-hmm. And so from a very early age, I was doing science experiments, tinkering computers, and all these different types of things. I went through high school, and then I went to college. My first, actually, my first uh, career choice of my first major in college was computer science. But back in the day, we didn't have Google. Right. We didn't have cell phones like that. Like, no iPhone. We didn't even have Facebook, Instagram, nothing. And I hated it. Mm-hmm. So then, being the Christian that I am, and I prayed about it, when God to, like, really direct my course, I prayed about it. And I had a dream. The dream was actually, like, my funeral. And there was a, a closed casket. And on the left-hand side, you saw a picture, which was me. And on the right-hand side, you saw a portfolio um, full of pictures, Polaroids, when we actually used to take pictures, mm-hmm. right? And every single picture was of me as a physician taking care of children. Wow. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> so then I switched my major to biology and I immediately got awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, freshman of the year, got published, uh, did a whole bunch of uh, community service. And once you get into that path of like biology and, you know, the, the studying and like the courses and the labs, the next logical step was to apply to medical school. And so that was kind of where I went. <laughs> so I definitely want to get back to like having this dream, yeah. um, which is a God moment. And then mm-hmm. you're not in medicine yeah. full time. I, yeah. de- I want to get back to that. Yeah. But before we go there, what I find interesting is that you ended up at Oakwood. Yeah. Right. So Oakwood. a lot of people, not, not a lot of people know that yes. school unless you're really plugged in mm-hmm. to the HBCU community particularly. Yeah. Um, but how did you end up at Oakwood? Yeah. Because you had the grades to go I did. a lot of places. I right? did. I did. So my parents always pushed me to have good grades. Mm-hmm. Uh, the currency in our household was to get a 4.0. Uh, it, it was it, it sucked, actually, because I went to go out to my with my friends in the movies or I went to have a car or whatever. And they were like, you need to bring home a 4.0. And I was like, what the? <laughs> and so I just did because, you know, my parents were just always pushing me to do that. Um, so funny enough, when I was applying to college, um, I got all of these responses back from mm-hmm. University of Michigan, Yale, uh, Stanford, Harvard, whatever, on scholarships and everything. My mom put them in the trash and I went to Oakwood University, which is an HBCU, Seventh-day Adventist institution, founded in 1896. And um, it was just a family tradition, honestly. Mm-hmm. My, my parents met there. My brother and my sister were there. I went there. My cousins went there. And so that's where I ended up, in a small school in Huntsville, Alabama. But how did you feel about that? You know, honestly, I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. Because at that time, growing up in a town of a thousand people, I didn't really know much about the outside world in terms of, like, careers. Mm -hmm. My whole family, lawyers or or professors, you know, they kind of work inside educational systems. Um, Didn't know anything much about business. I didn't know much about computer software or engineering. Um, And so I tried it for a couple of years, and I always knew I was going to go to graduate school someplace Mm -hmm. else. Graduate school was on me. So then I knew in four years I could go anywhere I wanted to go. If I wanted to go to Cali, if I wanted to go to New York, I could do that. And then in grad school, I can actually branch out. Gotcha. Yeah. So you switched to biology, mm-hmm. doing really well with aspirations yeah. to apply to medical school and go. Now, did you go straight through? Like, no, man. Okay. No, so what happened? Man. Girl, okay. So, <laughs> so basically... I went all the way through college, and to get into medical school, you have to take this uh, board exam called the MCAT. Mm-hmm. And I felt that joint the first time, and I was like, I'm done. I'm straight. I'm cool. It was great. And what, see, okay, so yeah. so having gone to law school, different yeah. world, but you have to take the LSAT, LSAT right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you don't fail the LSAT. Like mm-hmm. you can get a low score, but like you just go into a worse school. So you can yeah. actually fail the MCAT. So no, technically you can't fail. You get a low a low score, mm-hmm. but you understand like everybody who's applying to medical school, like there's a certain score that yes. that is necessary mm-hmm. to get in. Um, back in those days, you wanted to get like a 29 or 30 okay. um, out of our arbitrary 45 score, 15, 15, 15, right? Three sections on the exam. They've changed it since mm-hmm. then. I don't know what the score is now. Um, but I scored somewhere in the low 21s. Really? Yeah. And so if you do the standard deviation, like I'm like in the lower like 10%, mm-hmm. lower 15% if you do the bell curve distribution or whatever. Um, now, this test literally has no indication of how successful you're right. going to be or anything like that. But it's literally medical school is one of those those things where they have to put a cap on it mm-hmm. and only like 1%, 2% of the applicants get in. I think like 150,000 people apply to medical school each year wow. for like maybe 25,000 spots or some something crazy mm-hmm. like that. Maybe it's less than that. So I didn't do well and I wasn't going to get in. And I was like, bet, whatever, I'm straight. And then my mom, she was like, boy, (laughs) if you don't take that exam again. So I took the exam again and I did much better the Mm -hmm. the second time. I got a couple of interviews and I ended up heading to Howard in Washington, D.C. H-U. Another (laughs) H-U-B-C. I was so excited. Um, Yeah. So that's that was. So you ended up at Howard. Mm -hmm. So what was that like going from Huntsville, kind of like small town USA, Mm -hmm. to DC at one of like now this this is one of the the HBCUs that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? So it's interesting because in the HBC world, you have a couple of schools who are uh, notable for certain things. Mm -hmm. So. Oakwood University is definitely notable for like their music. They have a choir called the Aeolians. Um, you have Tuskegee University. Um, they're notable with their uh, a Tougaloo in Tuskegee are notable for getting people into medical school because mm-hmm. they have like an interaction and a partnership with Brown University and Howard University. Well, Howard was just notable for being like the best medical school for blacks in the nation. There's only three of them. There's Howard, there's Meharry, which is in Nashville, and then there's Morehouse, mm-hmm. which is Atlanta. And 80%, 85% of Black physicians actually come from one of these three wow. schools, right? And that's just, it may be an old statistic, but I think it's pretty much the same now. Um, So if you want to be at the top in creme de la creme, you want to go to Howard. If you want to be like a surgeon, if you want to like kind of branch out, you know, you have people like Charles Drew, um, the dean of our surgery uh, department was also the president of the American College of Surgeons. I mean, it was just a lot of prestige that I was not plugged into. Right. You know, I had a dream about becoming a doctor, but I never like really said at a young age, like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I didn't follow you know, notable physicians. Mm-hmm. I wasn't about all that pomp and circumstance. So it was overwhelming because, sure. pe- yeah, because people would walk in and this would be, oh, this is the director at the NIH, National Institutes of Health, or the director of the CDC, Center of Disease Control, or FEMA, this and that. You're like, what is happening? Right. <laughs> and these people are teaching my classes. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit intimidating. And then you go from a place where, like, you're a small fish or a big fish in a small mm-hmm. pond to being like a small fish in a huge pond where the students at Howard have photographic memories. Right. Like, they're super smart. They've been to a big institution. They had done better research. They have been more exposed. So it was crazy. Yeah, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people who've gotten postgraduate or graduate degrees or professional degrees from these really well-known competitive mm-hmm. schools because it is a shock. Like, if you've gone yeah. from somewhere where, like, you're the premier, like, you you know, you yeah. just do what you do, you're smart, mm-hmm. and you're going to rise to the top, mm-hmm. and now you're in an environment where everybody is like that, 
They're all the creme de la creme. Like the balance of power shifts, like the the level of competition shifts. Mm -hmm. And if you're not careful, it can play on your psyche around your ability to succeed. Mm -hmm. So knowing that you had come from a smaller school, may not have have had the same exposure, were you able to push through that and and feel like, okay, in spite of all of that, I'm Mm going to succeed here? Yeah, not at first though. Mm -hmm. So the way it works in medical school is that it's ranked. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is no like A, B, C, D. It's basically ranked on the person who gets like the highest grade. And so there would be consistently people who get 100 mm-hmm. percent. You know, um, we would have tests every two weeks. Um, most of the information was presented to us on PowerPoint. I've actually added it up. I think we had to go between five and seven thousand slides oh for gosh. every single test. And my classmates would raise their hand and be like, yeah, on, on this lecture, on this Thursday, on slide 327 in the bottom left-hand corner, you said this. And that's how they would challenge the questions because mm-hmm. they just couldn't know. And yeah, so my first year, I didn't do so hot. Mm-hmm. I didn't fail, but I was on the bottom end. Okay. I missed uh, an exam. Uh, I was supposed to get like a 70. I got a 69.42%. Oh, and I'll never forget that number. I'll yeah. never forget that number because I was like, this doesn't even make any sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, like, so... Because it was doing like a re-examination time, um, at that time, Howard let myself go and a couple other students. So they literally just just said goodbye. You. Yeah. Yeah. Let's pause here for a second. Mm-hmm. Because again, talking about the, the law school experience, I went to law school in mm-hmm. DC mm-hmm. and we went to to study. It was like a couple of friends and I at the Howard Law Library. Oh yeah. And I, you know, went to at the time, top 20 law school, mm-hmm. GW has since, I don't know what's going on in the rankings, but at the time, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I'm I'm used to a very difficult environment mm-hmm. for school. And these kids, when we went to this Howard Law Library, like the students, I shouldn't call them kids. Right. At the time we were all young adults, yeah. we were stressed, like super yeah. stressed, anxiety ridden. Yeah. And um, they were asking, you know, you just connect with a couple of people and they're like, Do you have outlines for contracts? Yeah. I'm like, sure, you can, yeah. you can have my stuff, but I didn't get it until I had a real conversation with um, a Howard student who was like, no, you don't, you think because we're all black folks here together that it's like super supportive and they're going to coddle yeah. you. And they're yeah. like, it's actually the exact opposite. opposite. They will fail you. They yep. will kick you out. Yep. It's a pressure cooker. And I was mm-hmm. like, are all the people? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. so um, that was my first exposure to the mm-hmm. fact that like, it's so cutthroat and you can be just let go. It's and that super, happened to you. Yeah, it happened to me. Mm-hmm. And, and there's history behind that. And I think the history has changed in the narrative, of course, uh, 2010, 2020 has changed. But yeah, you understand, like, Howard University was formed, man, like, 1868, 1868. Mm-hmm. So maybe three, four years after the abolishment of slavery. So women and Blacks and, over the time, anti-Semitism in America, Jewish people, um, and a whole bunch of people who were disenfranchised in, the, in America would go to Howard. But when they left Howard, they couldn't get residencies at, at regular hospitals. Sure. So you go to Howard to be a physician, but you don't go to residency be an OBGYN. But yet when you go back to your hometown, you're doing everything. Mm. You're doing surgery. You're doing OB-GYN. And so the history is, is that you have to be on your game. Back then at Howard, they would teach how to make your own pharmaceuticals. Wow. Right? We had a class like that. Um, they would teach you how to do certain techniques. And there's there certain techniques at Howard that have medical history that have actually been adopted by surgeons worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also kind of going into like 100 years later, 1960s, if you were a Black physician, you couldn't show like any weakness. Right, or deficiency or anything. Nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of my professors would like just be like, mm, 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 drill it into us. And that was the way the culture was. And so they only accepted or only respected the best. Now, it's different now. 
But yeah, I got let go my first year. So what did that <laughs> feel like for you after like being yeah. pushed by your mom to retake mm-hmm. the MCAT? You finally get in, you get into one of three premier HBCU medical schools in the country. Um, and now a year in, they're like, yeah, sorry, no, yeah. you're not going to make it here. Yeah. So it's actually interesting. I'm one of those people that, uh, man, when bad things happen, I literally back up. Mm-hmm. Because I have this fear of making a decision out of being too emotional and missing the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So when they kicked me out, I was pissed. And it definitely caused a rift between my parents and mm-hmm. I. You know, they were definitely disappointed and my whole uh, community were disappointed. Here's like this golden child right. or star child, I guess, if they looked at me like that. I never did, but didn't do well. And now it's kind of embarrassing to kind of come home like the tail between your legs. Um it didn't bother me, though. Mm-hmm. Not to the extent that I didn't feel like I was never going to become a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my some of my classmates that were let go, they lost all hope. For me, I went down to the University of Florida immediately and started working on my MPH program. Mm-hmm. Um, the stock market crashed. And because I didn't have in-state tuition at that point, they sent me a bill for $60,000. I was just, I'm not doing that. And so then I transitioned to a small school in Clinton, Mississippi, in the middle of nowhere again. Clinton? Clinton. I've never even heard of it. No, you never. Nope. <laughs> I-20, uh, exit 36, right outside Jackson, to the east of Jackson. Clinton, Mississippi, and they had a phenomenal medical program where you could get like a master's in medical mm-hmm. science and it can kind of get you into medical medicine. And so I heard that somebody had done that and gone back to medical school. Now, I was going to do that and not go back at Howard, mm. back to Howard. I was going to kill that joint and like do something different. Um, but what happened was it was a two-year program. I only got enough money for one year. And so I doubled on all my classes. Mm. The dean was like, hey, nobody's ever done this before. I don't know if you're going to make it. And I was like, watch me. <laughs> and I did. It was insane. Now, I, w- I would tell you that Clinton, Mississippi, that one year was harder than medical school. It was insane. Well, I mean, if you're out here doubling up on classes. Man, yeah. But it was just like the intensity, mm-hmm. but the support was 3,000 times more wow. than support at Howard. Um, and so I went back to Howard and... I said, hey, I got my master's, here are the books, and here's everything I've learned. I had to sit in front of the president of the university, who's not, who's actually a surgeon at Howard, mm-hmm. and the regents of the medical school, and they went through all my books. Remember how I told you how um, the first year people would like mm-hmm. have photographic memory, and I had to figure out what was on each page? They did the same thing with me. Now, oh in Missi- yeah, but in Mississippi, it was cumulative learning. So the first 100 pages plus the next 100, and you had to know it all. Mm. Um, and so that helped me. And so they could literally flip through the page and explain to me like this process of antihypertensive medicines. And I'd be like, that just sounds stressful. It was crazy. I was nervous. But but tell me this, when they let you go the first time, did they say you can apply, you can request to come no, back later. They no. just like, see you. So you just- I'm, I'm done. You just proactively Yo, reached so out. Yo, so I called the Dean of Anatomy, who's also the Associate Dean for like admissions every single month. For how long? For those two years. Are you serious? I'm dead, dead serious. I would literally um, have like nightmares of the same experience happening to me, of like getting kicked out, whatever, like nightly, like for months. Like- it, I didn't believe that I wasn't going to be a physician, mm-hmm. but I had to get over it. Like, it didn't bother me to, in like my self-esteem, but I was just like, yo, this is like, right. this isn't right. Like I'm, I'm outside of where I need to be. It felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I called them, called them, called them, called them. And then he was like, fine, you don't do masters, we'll give you one chance. 
So you go in, you have to explain everything that's in uh-huh. all of these books. Mm-hmm. And how long before they give you a decision? So check this out. The dean, when I left Howard, there was a dean who would not be named. She said, you will never become a physician. Goodbye. That dean got fired. And oh another gosh. dean came in. This is how God worked. I don't want to be like a testimony, but like what but happened? It's a testimony. It's a yeah. testimony. So the new dean that came in was a psychiatrist. And I'm, we'll get into how that helped worked later. So it was a whole new group of people that I had that didn't mm-hmm. know me. But because I had a champion who was the dean of uh, anatomy that gave me this opportunity, they were impressed. Mm-hmm. They had no idea how much I struggled two years ago. They looked at my grades and like, okay, but he wasn't even doing that bad. Mm-hmm. So then- It's the ranking system. It's the ranking yeah. system, yep. So it was nerve wracking. I did well. I stood up. I couldn't even sit down. I was blabbing off of the mind, like drawing diagrams and stuff. And I got in. Uh, they gave me the the report the same day I got my um, diploma from Mississippi. Mm. So I got a letter. We're pleased to announce that you will be part of the class of 2014, I think, at that time. And I got my diploma from Mississippi College. My brother just bought a house. And I gave my diploma to my parents. And I gave them the acceptance letter that I'm going back to medical school. So <laughs> that's just crazy. Yeah. So when you got when you came back, what did you come back as? Freshman year. So you had to start all over, over again, all over in different class. Um, and that was kind of, it was nerve wracking to a, to, a, to a degree. My original classmates were now seniors. I was about to say, so they're still, given the time frame, if my math serves me correctly, they're still on campus. They're still on campus. And so seniors. what was that like, getting a second yeah. chance, but seeing people that you started with yeah. about to start the next which what, what is it? Uh, residency. residency, right? Yeah, they're about to um, graduate. Yeah, they're chilling. Like yeah. working medical school. Coasting, right? Chilling. Yeah, they're coasting. They're chilling. So, what were you feeling? Um, I was happy to see them mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. I mean, but then again, I was kind of like, man, like I knew that they probably thought I was like a failure. Mm-hmm. And I should probably pause here. I don't believe in failure. Mm-hmm. I really don't. It sounds weird, but I mean, I struggle so much with things, and that's when I get like the most excited, mm-hmm. and I become like the most. And, uh, innovative and, and and just have like things and thinking outside the box. Um, my freshman year, when I came back, everybody was looking at me and they were like, yo, you can't mess up again. But then other people were like, yo, we're happy to have you back. Mm-hmm. This is what I've learned here, my notes. You know, so some people were supportive and some people were just like, whatever. Um, it was okay. Mm-hmm. It was okay. I didn't like my class that year. You know, I felt like a little bit out of water and out. I would try to help people and people like look at me, yeah, but you failed. Like, yeah. you know. So they knew. Yeah, they knew. They knew. Student. Mm-hmm. Um, but then things changed because I started like just killing my classes, you know. So what do you attribute that to? Like struggling so much the first time and yeah. then coming back the second time and like knocking it out of the park. I'm one of those people that like to find um, I get really excited about the gray areas. Mm-hmm. If you present me like with some information, you're a lawyer. Yeah. I, I, I can't do law. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't do medicine. <laughs> I can't do law. I would have never made it out of organic chemistry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So organic chemistry is a good example. Mm-hmm. Like you give me a, a molecule and you say, this is how it works, what I, I have a huge and high level of skepticism and I want to see like what the gray areas are, whatever. And I need like a bigger, uh, a big picture. It just mm-hmm. takes me more time. But once I get the big picture, the level of momentum that I have goes beyond usually the understanding, right? Mm-hmm. I give you a prime example. When I was at Loma Linda University, Southern California, I was mm-hmm. doing research and we were studying like the um, the the servants to try to help women that had like um, weak services during pregnancy and everything like that. It was in a mouse. Um, they gave me all this research and everything like that. And I was like, mm, 
I think we can make a computer program to kind of like analyze some of these great areas that were missing mm-hmm. our research. That's why I get excited. And that's what I did. And in college, I published that paper and I'm still using that today. Wow. So it's it's a different way of learning, not, not to go after the 4.0 or to get the good grade, but to really understand something. Mm-hmm. And that you can't, you can't, you can't quantify that. Yeah. I, I don't care what your grades say. Absolutely. That's how I was. I mean, my parents, that used to, that used to really bother my parents. Oh, I'm sure. Especially if they're, you know, arts, yeah. liberal arts folks who yeah. just don't even really, all they know is like, you're going to school for medicine. Exactly. Where are you going to have the grades to That's be successful in this yeah. field? And I never cared about that. Mm-hmm. It, that was so frustrating to them. They'd be like, what do you mean? Yeah. So when when failure comes mm-hmm. because I didn't meet a certain mark, it, I'm, I'm trying to reach a different one. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm I know that I'm going to be successful. I'm not going to get back into medical school. Not one day in my life that I never felt like I was going to become a physician. This was just like a step in the road. Right. But it was frustrating. I had the bad dreams. I felt like I disappointed my parents. I tried to explain to them that everything was okay. I called the guy every month. But how can you how can you feel? How can you say to yourself that you're going to be a physician, but you don't put in the work? Mm -hmm. You know? So I think like there's a little bit of like working hard too. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you get back to Howard, you're killing it this yeah. time around. Mm-hmm. Seeing your former classmates go on to yep. residency while you're yep. just kind of yeah. trudging through. Yeah. Um, what was the plan after? Were you did you at that point did you plan to apply? Yeah. To the SEC program and all 100%. that. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. So going back to what I said about understanding something fully in Jackson, Mississippi, at the uni- at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, there was this guy, cannot remember his name, but he was literally the the de facto um, expert on kidney physiology, Mm -hmm. how the kidney works and everything like that. And I learned a lot of stuff reading his original papers. And I went to go to Howard and become a urologist. Mm -hmm. A urologist works on kidney, the bladder, both men and women. I know urologists, it's more like they work on men's stuff. But no, they work a lot on women too. Um, And I loved it. So when I first got into Howard, I went straight to urology and started um, shattering the doctors at Mm -hmm. Howard, started shattering the doctors at Hopkins and Georgetown. Um, and I don't want to go too far in the interview, but basically what happened, because I was shattering, my dad said that he was having some issues with his kidneys, mm. and he sent me his CT scans. And I showed the doctor at uh, of urology at Georgetown. He was like, mm, that doesn't sound right. And so within four months of me being back in medical school, my father was diagnosed with four, stage four terminal cancer of the kidney. So you had been back for four, four months. months. I was killing it. I and was like, like, you're doing your thing this time. Yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> and through your interest in urology, yep. with these, I'm sure, premier doctors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, at in DC, yep. your father is diagnosed. Yeah, I hope that. And he's living him. where at this time? Michigan. In Michigan. Yeah. And knew he knew it was terminal from the beginning. No, they didn't oh. know. They didn't know. My 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 father was having um a little pain mm-hmm. and he was uh, urinating some blood, which mm-hmm. is common if you have a kidney stone. Mm-hmm. So he went to a doctor and said, are well, you having kidney stones? We'll let the blood didn't stop. So I told him to send me the CTs. He went to University of Chicago and then that's where they diagnosed his kidney. It's super rare. Only like three or 4,000 people have ever been diagnosed with it. It was super, super rare. And we picked it up while I was in medical school. Wow. So stage four. Stage four. You're on your second act. I'm on my second Like, this yeah. is it. Like, you've got to make this happen, and your father is terminally ill. Uh-huh. How do you process that in the moment? Um, I had to switch priorities real quick. I went to go see a psychiatrist immediately mm-hmm. because I've been through so much so like over the past couple of years 
I knew that my father was going to die. I got back into medical school and I did not know how this was going to affect me. Mm-hmm. So if I don't know how this is going to affect me, once again, I told you how I like to back away mm-hmm. and like kind of see things and like be, I had no idea how I was going to do that. So I needed help. Mm-hmm. So I went to go see a psychiatrist and we sat on the couch and, you know, we talked it out and, you know, do whatever we had to do medical wise and everything like that. But my transit, my, my mindset changed. Of course. I forgot all about medicine. If you were to ask me today, like how was medical school and everything like that, I can't remember because I just remember flying back and forth to take care of my father. Um, I did the first few years, did extremely well, took the boards after my second year. Um, I went home to see my father. He asked me if I passed my boards. I failed them that time. Mm. He died like two days later. My mom was getting sicker at that time. I felt like trash, but my father died in my arms. And I spent the first two years of medical school really just focusing on him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was supposed to die in six months, but he lived for two years. And so I felt like that was time for him to kind of get things in order for us mm-hmm. to bond. Um, and then I went back and passed my boards. And then my mother got sick. And I'm flying back and forth Okay, again. wait, wait. <laughs> let's, let's pause. Yeah. Um, so you, how long after your, your father passed did you take your boards again? Um, probably like four months, four or five months. So which is... In yeah. the grand scheme of grieving, is no time. It's no time. Right? Mm-hmm. So you, how long were you home after your dad made his transition? I took the full year. Took the full year. Which was actually only six months at okay. that point. So the okay. rest of that year. So it was about rest of that, rest of that year. Yeah, okay. so about six months. Pass your, your boards. When did your mom start to get sick? So my mom started to get really, really sick. Um, let me back up. My mom had a lung condition called sarcoidosis. Mm-hmm. So they diagnosed that in her when she was pregnant with me mm-hmm. in the early 80s. But she had fairly been healthy, you know, my whole life. But when my dad started getting really, really sick, that took a toll. Mm-hmm. So my mom started really getting sick. My father was diagnosed in 2010. He died in 2012. Around 2012, my mom started getting really sick. Can't get up and walk around the house. She probably got a little bit depressed. She was losing her life mate. Um, married for 45 years. Mm-hmm. Dated for like 50. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so she just started declining. And I had to fly back from Howard, Washington, D.C. to Barron Springs like almost every two weeks. And how are you affording this? Because, you know, we yeah. all know like being broke in school. Yeah, like, yeah. It's it's a, a feat just to like pay <laughs> your regular bills yeah. and mm-hmm. you're not working and all. So how are you? And I know we do what we have to do when we have an ill yeah. relative in a crisis. But how did you make that happen? So I moved out of my apartment, lived with my family. Mm-hmm. I had a side of business building apps and medical mm-hmm. Offices and doctors um, and web pages and stuff. Uh, I wasn't actually building them. I had like a, a couple of engineers helping me. Uh, so that bought in a couple of dollars. Um, and then credit cards and then yeah. student loans. I just took out as much as I could, could and put everything else I could on credit card. For me, I didn't want to miss these experiences. Of course. Um, I had I had known that once you go to medical school and go that route, like you won't be able to spend time with family. And I just was not going to miss this. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it may affect me adversely. Things may not work out for you, Jerick, mm-hmm. if you continue spending your time and energy with your family instead of on your books. I didn't care. I was like, this is it. This is what is important. So you passed your boards. I did. And then where were you living after you, you passed your boards? So you were home for six months. Mm-hmm. So you were flying back and forth from... Yeah, um, from D.C. From D.C. After I passed my boards, I went back to medical school. Went back to medical school. And then yeah. flew back and forth. Flew back and forth. Yeah. And your mom's health is declining. Declining. Um, yeah. And as people of faith, mm-hmm. you know, we have... A, a firm, most of us have a firm belief that someone can be healed, right? Mm-hmm. 
and we pray and we, we do all those things. But having gone through one parent with a terminal illness, were you facing mm-hmm. the reality of what could potentially happen? Hundred percent, hundred percent. So I think that there, I have two tattoos mm-hmm. on my on my shoulder. On um, my left hand side is for my father, and that says Sophia for wisdom. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's on the right hand side. My left hand side is for my mother, close to my heart. Instead of saying like love and blah blah blah, it says tenacity. Mm-hmm. So I feel like my parents gave me like wisdom and tenacity as they passed down to me. But my gift to my parents was actually preparing them to die. Really? Yeah. So I knew my father had terminal cancer. I'm going back up a little bit. In 2010, he was diagnosed. In 2011, he got his kidney taken out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, try to stop the cancer. He was so super happy about that and ecstatic. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, it's crazy. We had another death in my family. A cousin passed. My mom went that summer to spend time with her brother who lost uh, his daughter. Mm -hmm. That summer, my father and I had a conversation. I was like, father or dad, um, I know you got your kidney taken out, but you're going to die. You told him that. 100%. 100%. And he was mad. He was upset. I was like, dad, it's not. It's not what it is. But as you're sitting here and laying here in this bed, I got you an iPad and I got you this thing called TED Talks and I got mm-hmm. you the National uh, Geographic. And when we were growing up, my father and I used to like spend a lot of time looking at PBS and stuff. Um, and we just sat there like digesting information. My father was the type of person that that understood what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. You have an X amount of time to get things in order the way you want for your family, for your children, for your wife, like blah, blah, blah. And after that whole experience, once again, I've been in therapy, mm-hmm. right? And I helped him through that. He had the best life. My dad created a YouTube channel of him wow. playing like some crappy little um, keyboard songs. He would speak a lot. He was uh, he wrote a lot of poetry, he wrote love letters to, to um, my brother, my sister, and I. Like He lived that life, mm-hmm. but he passed in 2012. And then um, my mom got really, really sick in 2012. And in 2013, when I'm flying back and forth, I'm really just flying, making sure that she gets out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. She's going to the hospital for pneumonia all the time. I got to go back to Barron Springs. Got to go and see what her um, her chart says. Curse out the dots. Curse out the nurses. Mm-hmm. And transfer her to different hospitals. I mean, it was crazy. Um, so I had the same conversation with her. I was like, Mom, it doesn't look good. Your heart and your lungs, you know, I think you're going to die. And she's like, get out of here. Right. Because <laughs> your t- parents were be- like hardcore believers, Yeah, right? hardcore so- believers. But there's a difference mm-hmm. here. She was stubborn. Remember, I told her she got diagnosed when mm-hmm. I was a child. Well, when I was born. So she'd been living with this, this disease for 30-some right. odd years. She had fought. The tenacity had kept her alive. I was too immature and ignorant to understand that. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with my dad. My dad was like, bet. I get what you're trying to say. Boom. Now, my parents never smoked, never drank, never uh, did drugs. Like, they Mm -hmm. didn't do any of that ever. So my dad was upset that he got cancer. Um, But my mom had always understood that something may not be right with her body, so she worked. Mm -hmm. So when I told her that, she kicked me out the room. We tried to get nurses to come to the house to take care of her. She would have them wait in the living room for like three hours. Get out with the little cane, like, you can go home now. I'm okay. (laughs) It was it was a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I believe that everything would be okay, but I did not believe that they were going to live. Mm. And trying to get my brother and my sister on the same page, that was tough too. Yeah. You know, I'm the youngest one. Mm-hmm. So I understood a little bit more about my parents and their conditions, probably more than my brother and my sure. sister did. Sure. And I'm in medicine too. So right. I had, and I'm sure that contributed to your ability to have the tough conversations. That's what doctors are trained to do, to look at the facts. And miracles do happen and all that stuff, but it's it's their job to explain to you what the prognosis is based on what we know about your condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how long did your mom survive while having these 
while her health was deteriorating. 18 months after my dad died. Wow. Almost to the to the day. Um, this is now I'm in my fourth year of medical school. Mm-hmm. I'm in surgery, one of the hardest. Remember I told you the director of surgery yeah. is like the American College of Surgeons. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to like, you know, impress them because you have to do these resident uh these electors to like try to go mm-hmm. to residency, urology, all this different type of stuff. And um it was my birthday weekend, April 18, 2014 is my birthday. I was on call for 24 hours at the hospital. I'm calling my mother. And she was like, happy birthday, Jarek. I feel so good. Mm-hmm. Everything's like going well. The sun is coming out in Barron Springs, Michigan. I went outside today. Blah, 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 blah. I was like, this is great. This is good. You know, whatever. Um, and then on April 22nd, four days later, she passed. How does that happen? <laughs> um, so medically speaking, I don't want to get too deep into mm-hmm. it. You bodies who have been sick for a while, they I don't know where it comes from. The theory is it comes from the spinal cord, maybe come from the kidneys, maybe the liver, but the, the body does like one final push of you like euphoria mm. and like just kind of pushes beautiful hormones into the system, makes people feel good, whatever. And then after that, it's just like a rapid decline. Um and so the winters in Michigan are kind of tough. She had been inside, but when she went outside and she was feeling good for the first time in a couple of years, she was hopeful. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed, but she 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 passed. Where were you when you got that school. news? Well, I mean, like, were oh. you in surgery? Were you working when oh. you got that that news? Yeah, I was in surgery. I was in surgery. I was working on a uh, with a patient had like a, a cyst on, the, on like their liver, and I got the call, and I knew exactly what it was. Um, one thing I did in med school, they had like these these headphones that you can like kind of wrap around your neck mm-hmm. and put like in the ear. They were popular, and I would wear those all the time. I stopped wearing bow ties and everything mm-hmm. like that because if I got a call, I need to like just kind of go around the corner, mm-hmm. take it, see my mother was. But I was in surgery, and they had the thing in my ear, and I couldn't answer the call. And I was like, okay, I just you know get it when I when I leave. Mm-hmm. And I got the call, and I immediately just started crying. My classmate told me, and then once again. Uh, went straight to my dean, mm-hmm. who was a psychiatrist. He was like, do you want to stop surgery? Do you want to stop, you know, and take some time? I was like, no, no more stopping. You kidding me out the first time? Mm-hmm. Had to go to Mississippi, Florida, got back in. Then I had to go back home to care of my parents. No, we're doing this thing. Like, I'm going to go home, bury my mother. Everything's going to be what it needs to be. Um, and then I'm going to come back. Uh, so I did that. The funeral was crazy. I played my guitar. I sang. I flew back to medical school, had my oral boards in surgery and my written exam, honored those things. And then that was that. <laughs> but how do you go back? Like, it's yeah. one thing to lose yeah. one parent prematurely, but then to lose both yeah. within 18 months of each other. And that is traumatic when you have like a desk job, right? Mm-hmm. In, in any yes. situation or yeah. you could be a button pusher and yeah. it's going to be hard to go back to work. How did you go back to school after that? Well, because it was one of those things that that was the safest place, safest place for me. Mm-hmm. I had literally, remember I told you my father got sick. I went to go see the psychiatrist mm-hmm. immediately. That, that's expensive. Yeah. You know, and I, if while I was in school, I could do that for free. Mm-hmm. Um, while I was in school, I can get health care and take care of my own self. While I was in school, I could get student loans. I mean, I, I thought about, man, I should just quit and get a job. What person would hire me be like, hey, man, I'm going to take off six months. Right. I had to stay in school to be to, to be sane. And because going back to your question about or, or the comments about failure and like mm-hmm. grades, I didn't care. I, they, that didn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the pressure of trying to get like a good grade in medical school. I didn't care. Mm-hmm. Did what I need to do. 
learn as much as I need to, and then go home and take care of my parents. There was no A, B, C, D um, validation behind the back that's going to make me feel better. So school was the safest place. Um, looking back on it, it was also the most expensive place. Right. Student loans are killer, but it was the safest place because if I had been working or whatever, I probably would have tried to self-medicate. True. And I just didn't have time. When you got to wake up at 5 a.m., well, you have to be at the hospital at 5 a.m., mm-hmm. you know, every morning, you don't have time to mess around. And my my secret sauce of being successful in life or even in medical school was showing up. Mm-hmm. I showed up. That's it. I just went to the hospital and I showed up. I was there every day. This is just like <laughs> astounding to me. Yeah. Um, so you you finish. I'm done. Yeah. You, you finish, finish all my classes. You, you did everything you were supposed all to do. All my board's done. Um, and then at some point you decided that you weren't going to practice medicine. Yeah. Yeah. How did that happen? So when my mother and father were going through the last stage of their life, I really started thinking about mine. And I recognized that I could be happy in medicine, extremely happy to be mm-hmm. in medicine. Um, but in order to give the same level of love and care, no, I actually never explained it like this before. Mm-hmm. In order to give the same level of love and care that I give to my parents, right? Um, you have to be wholly invested. Mm-hmm. And I'm the type of person that would be in the surgery room, like doing what I need to do, but then also in the back of my mind, trying to do like this tech thing, mm-hmm. you know? And I just, I couldn't live myself if I was going to do that. It was either going to be all or nothing. Um, or I could be like, all right, let me go into tech. But then if I'm going to be doing tech, I can't like do medicine. So I had to find like a, a happy medium. Um, going through residency and then spending your whole life as a physician was and still is, I think, amazing. Mm-hmm. But I had given personal care to my parents. So it wasn't a job. It wasn't like a pop and circumstance. It wasn't a prestige. Like, this is a level of care that I'm going to give to my patients. Can I do that and like for the rest of my life, 100%? And maybe that's a high bar, but that's where I started at. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm touching people's lives here. And I'm, you know, I, I took it seriously. Um, and so... I recognize I had these two loves, like a Gemini, like two double-faced mm-hmm. person, right? And these loves have always been talking back and forth, right? You asked me how to pay for medical school and like those traveling. I had my own tech company while I was in med- medical school. Um, when I got really stressed, I would go to a tech conference and relax at the tech conference, thinking about ideas and, and being uh, innovative and thinking outside the box mm-hmm. and, and, and talking about stuff that wasn't even created yet. Right. That it, this is incredibly yeah, fascinating. That's what I did. So, what was that come to Jesus moment where you were like, "No, I'm gonna go this tech path." Man, this is kind of like a crazy story too. My sister, 18 months after my my mom died, my sister gets diagnosed with breast cancer, and she dies within a year at the age of 41. And I'm just kind of like, "Yo." We're not doing this right. <laughs> like this right. Like, I'm, I'm just like, and of course, I yeah. knew your story coming into this. Yeah. But I remember hearing that and being like, yeah. What? Like, yeah. So, eight, so your, your mom dies. Mm-hmm. You continue on the path to medicine. Mm-hmm. Where were you in your career journey when your sister was diagnosed? I was done. You I were d- done. I was done with my boards. Mm-hmm. I had decided to take some time off. Um, investigate, like, work for business and work for a medical device mm-hmm. company, and I was going to come back to medicine. Mm-hmm. So I was working for a medical device company, and I was going to decide if I was going to go back into, like, uh, work in a hospital, like, mm-hmm. business or doctor, like, whatever. Then my sister got diagnosed with breast cancer, and I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. My issue with medicine isn't that it's not great. It's just that how it's being applied, mm-hmm. I'm not satisfied with. Mm-hmm. I think we can do more. 
But as a physician, um, there's only so much you can do. Now, there's some great physicians out there that can do clinical bedside stuff and clinical work in the lab and like touch people and do like all this tech stuff and blah, blah, blah. But something has to give, you know, and I want to give a certain level of care. So I said, you know what? Let me go 100% in the tech. This is where we can like kind of answer some of these questions. This is where we can be a little bit more innovative. This is where we can kind of like really focus in on like making some of these strategies happen. Um, and other people can, you know, be bedside and, you know, in the surgery and surgical room and everything like that. So that was coming to Jesus. I mean, I had lost so many people at that point that I felt like medicine could be applied a different way. And we could use computers and technology to mm-hmm. kind of diagnose disease earlier. We can kind of move uh, the needle um, in terms of patient care, just a little bit close to home. You know, you can take a, a device and take a picture and say, hey, I'm having this issue. Email it or send it to a physician. They can diagnose you within seconds as opposed to going to a doctor, being scared of going to a doctor, set up an appointment, you know, all this type of stuff, mm-hmm. all these barriers. So how did you reconcile the dream that you had? Um, because yeah. a lot of people would say, well, I had this dream that yeah. I was treating patients and that was God telling me that that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Yeah. People of faith mm-hmm. put a lot of weight in that. Yeah. Um, did you have that kind of conflict, internal 100%. conflict? About yeah, hundred percent. I mean, but at the, at the end of the day, I was like, God, you're in control of this. Mm-hmm. You know, you lead me to where you know we need to be. Now, what's interesting is a couple months ago, I actually had a uh, interview with a company. I was actually doing the exact same thing I described. Mm-hmm. It was a company that was doing nonprofit medical work, and they're looking for like a person to become like their um, business director and technical lead, CTO lead. So that kind of still kind of comes in. I could still be that person that helps children all over the world, but just in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, and I honestly really believe that you're given certain gifts that you're meant to enjoy in life. Like if you love to sing, like God gave you that gift so you can enjoy it. If you love to paint, if you love to spend time with friends, like those are things, you know, even technical skills, computer skills, uh, law skills, logical reasoning, stuff like that. So you can enjoy your life. They're not meant to be a hindrance. Mm-hmm. So I struggle with that. But once again, I was never tied to a what that looked like, mm-hmm. to the white coat, to the bow ties, or like the stature. I was never tied to that. So your sister is given this diagnosis. At, at what stage was she when she was She diagnosed? was stage four. Stage four. She so- was stage four. And she like she had literally got diagnosed like Immediately, she had like some pain um, in her armpit. She went to a doctor. Um, she had just gotten married. Mm. Um, she found that she was pregnant. I mean, everything was, she was just getting checked up. And she found out that she had the cancer in her, in her breast. Um, they took it out. She sent me a picture of the tumor. And I know exactly where I was. I was, um, I was at home. I was actually in Florida at this time. Um, I was in between, in between jobs when she sent me the picture. Oh, sorry. I was sending for my boards at this mm-hmm. time. Um, and when she sent me the picture, I just bawled. I, yeah, that was like, that's the hardest thing. I just because bawled. I'm like, you've got to be fragile at this yeah. point after having yeah. lost both your parents to mm-hmm. illness. Yeah. And our, and so my sister is older than me. She was eight years older. My brother's six years older and I'm the youngest. And so around that time, we were trying to figure like our relationships out. Mm-hmm. You know, they were a little jealous of me because I thought I was like the golden child mm-hmm. and I got everything and I was like smart and like the favorite, including my brother was a favorite. And my sister, she was a trailblazer. She was a lawyer like mm-hmm. you. Uh, she spoke three different languages. She was this and that. Like, 
she was a woman's woman. Mm-hmm. Like she had guys falling over her all the time. She would travel everywhere. I thought that she was a CIA agent when I was younger because <laughs> she was never at home. She left college. She got a great job at a company that's not existing anymore called Arthur Anderson. I guess oh, yeah. Changed. Anderson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They changed her name. She um, graduated in 1999. She was making like $150,000 at that time, moved to Chicago. She was just balling. Living her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was everywhere and everybody loved her. Um, when she got diagnosed with breast cancer, she was actually working as a law professor, a pre-law professor at Oakwood University. Mm. The death of my parents shook her so much that she lost, She left her, she didn't lose it. She left her uh, law practice in Seattle and wanted to come back to Oakwood, wanted to come back to Seven-day Adventist principles. Mm-hmm. She wanted to get married. She wanted to, you know, be settled a little bit. That's what God told her that what she needed to do. And I looked at her and wrote her eyes. I was like, girl, you know how much Oakwood pays? <laughs> Right. So she went there and then that's when she found a husband that she also got diagnosed. Mm. So I was angry at that minute, at that point. I was angry because I love my sister, but I didn't feel like God gave her enough time to actually really allow her to even deal with mom and dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was your approach different this time after having those really real conversations with your parents yeah. about their My sister cut outlook. me off. She cut me off. She want she didn't want <laughs> she didn't want to talk to me at all. Mm-hmm. She didn't let me look at any of her medical records. She didn't let me, and that hurt the most because mm-hmm. she saw how I was flying back and forth to take care of my parents. She didn't want, so she did her own thing. I had doctors at the NIH. Um, there was actually a, a physician, one of my mentors, who actually had two different breast cancers and two different breasts, got both mastectomized, mm-hmm. um, and was featured on PBS. I was on PBS in like a special, like mm-hmm. proxy to her, doing certain things. It's like, yo, She's actually a breast surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. So a breast cancer surgeon, surgical oncology is what they call it. And, you know, she wants to talk to you. My sister would not come to D.C. She wouldn't come meet with the people I've set up. Wow. That was tough. But she was dealing with her own way. She got a care at the University of Alabama. Um, yeah. I tried to do the best I could, but that was hard. Mm-hmm. And when did you accept that my sister's not going to beat this? Especially because you're not as intimately yeah. familiar as you were with your parents. Yeah. Um, this is, she She passed away in 2017. And I guess like at the beat in January 2017, she passed away in July. Uh, so January 2017, I was like, oh, this isn't going to go well. Mm-hmm. So I was the most hopeful of my sister. Mm-hmm. We got breast cancer. We got a whole bunch of drugs. It's the most studied cancer. You know, tons of survivors. Oh, you'll be okay. You'll do that. I was hopeful for that. You know? So that was tough. And I mean... Was your faith shaken at this point? Like, to, yeah. to, for this to hit yeah. your family essentially back to back to yeah. back um, over what, two 18-month periods, so 18 months between your mm-hmm. mom yeah. and your dad, and then 18 months between... 18 months to two years. Two years between your yep. mom and your sister. Mm-hmm. And you still consider yourself a believer. Yeah. Why? Well, because I think that... How can I say this? I, I feel like we woke up this morning and the sun rose in the east. Mm-hmm. And it's set in the West. We're breathing this air. We didn't, you know, we didn't do anything. We can't stop our heart from beating. Like there's certain things that at our work that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. Even if we wanted to stop it, we can't. Now, if I could say to the sun and the moon and stars, don't rise, then I wouldn't have a need for God. Mm-hmm. But I can't. So there's a certain level of understanding, a certain level of omnipotence or or know-how of like how to how things work. And especially understanding the human body for mm-hmm. such and studying the human body for such a long time. I mean, I'm at all every single time like I study this thing. Uh, you can go out in space and like see galaxies and stars, but you can go that same distance into yourselves, like mm-hmm. infinite on both 
on both ways. Um, but that doesn't mean that God has to do what I want or I'm actually going to understand him. And when you like kind of look at who God is, he's no respecter of persons. Um, but what I do believe is that he seals his people or the people that he wants, the people that want to be with him before they pass. Mm-hmm. Um, how he does it, I don't know. I used to have questions of like, okay, well, how did the Native Americans going to get to heaven? Or how are like the people in Japan, like they don't even know like God, like the way I know God. That's none of my business, you know? So I guess it's above my pace, my pace scale. Mm-hmm. Now, what I will tell you is, is that I don't only just believe in Christianity. I believe that humans have a spirituality that needs to be fostered. Mm-hmm. So whatever you believe, if you listen to this, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Baptist, Christian, or Muslim, um, you know, dive into your spirituality because that's for you. That's what you know. Um, but and you yeah. know, I'm, I'm glad you you said that because a lot of times as Christians, yeah. there's this pompous attitude, right? Oh, that, yeah. that we're the way and believe what you believe. Sure. Um, but one of the things that it's become even more real to me is that we don't have to have all the answers. No. And it is okay. You know, when, when things happen and you experience um, this much loss and in this period of time, people will be heavy on the cliches, right? Yeah. God won't put more on you than he, you know than you can mm-hmm. bear. Don't question him, blah, 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 blah. And the reality of it is, though, that you have the right to yeah. be angry or be disillusioned or have questions. And you can sit in those feelings and work through them with a licensed professional. Yeah. Prayer is great and we can ground Mm -hmm. ourselves in spirituality and I believe in all of that. But also don't be afraid to say this is a lot and I don't know how I'm going to cope and make use of what we deem secular resources as well. A hundred percent. I feel like that might just be kind of a stigma in certain communities, especially African-American communities in terms of therapy and stuff as well. But I mean, I got very, very comfortable cursing God out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd rather curse them out than do that and misplace that in other relationships. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a relationship with somebody and I curse them out, then I got to be like, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. But people always remember how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. I can curse. I, dude, I wake up in the morning or evening time, I'm like, man, God, blah, 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 blah. I can't believe you did this, yada, yada, yada. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. He'll take that. Right. For sure. So. So you lose your sister. So this is the third, yeah. but you had already had a death in your family prior to that. So yeah. it's really like the fourth, right? So if you were to span up the years between 2010 to 2019, we lost 16 people in my family. 16? 16. Uncles, grandparents, cousins. Like, we were losing, like, people. It was either two or three deaths per year in our family. So we're always going to live funerals. It was just too much. It was too much. And, you know, this is interesting to me because our family had a span like that. It was so bad at one point. We had a double funeral and, like, unrelated deaths. Like, it it, it had gotten to that point. And I remember at some point just breaking. Like, it was like I couldn't take anymore. Did you have that rock bottom moment? Yeah. I had a rock bottom moment. Um, Each death was a little bit different, Mm -hmm. though. So with my father, I got angry. I became a very angry person. Try to work that out through therapy. Mm-hmm. With my with my mother, I became very promiscuous. I was just like, I don't know what it is. Doing your thing. Doing my mm-hmm. thing. Just blah, blah, blah. With my sister, like deep level of, of depression. But right after my sister's funeral, we got back from my sister's funeral. Um, and then my girlfriend at the time told me that we're expecting the child. Mm-hmm. So this is where I was like, I can't break. <laughs> yeah. I can't because... I don't, my child is going to, is going to be here and he doesn't have a grandmother or a grandfather or auntie. And yes, he has my brother, but my brother at that time was trying to navigate his wife needing a kidney transplant. So there was, it was just, oh my God. right. So I'm like, I can't, I can't, 
you know, so I had to figure that out. So at that moment, I was working in D.C. Um, I moved to California, where my uh, girlfriend at the time was, and we decided on that path. And that was tough. Like, that was super hard. That was super, super difficult. And that's kind of like where we started picking up more of like the technology piece. But yeah. So tell, yeah, let's yeah. let's shift gears. I mean, I yeah. just find your personal experiences to be so incredibly difficult that yeah, it it's hard to even focus on the the career piece. Well, no, let's but, just answer your question. Like, you broke. I probably would have. That mm-hmm. probably would have been the moment that I was going to break, but I had a child on the way. Yeah. So you decide to become an engineer. Mm-hmm. What does that decision <laughs> and that transition look like when you have all this schooling, all the fighting you did yeah. to get back into medical school and you finish grieving and taking mm-hmm. boards and all this other stuff? What does that transition look like now to a different arena? Yeah, it's actually kind of crazy. I was going through my Instagram actually this morning and I found a picture from 2014 of me actually trying to code and practice mm-hmm. and kind of dive deeper. Um, and then going back into like my freshman year of college and different things like this has kind of been like an underlying current going back to what I was saying that God gives you certain things about yourself to enjoy to kind of help you from going rock bottom like Mm -hmm. that baseline like I would always find comfort in computers and like understanding Um, so I moved to California and at first that wasn't the original goal the goal was to continue doing my medical devices Mm -hmm. in California make three times as much money you know go be back in the surgery uh, the surgical center and like help doctors like with device and then stuff like that, which I thought was cool. Couldn't find a job to save my life. Mm. I wasn't the right color, wasn't the right size, wasn't the right sets. Um, they wanted somebody who can do sales and like be sexy and cute. And I just wasn't it. Um, one of the companies I applied for was like, there's nobody even here that looks like you. So they actually said they that, said that, which they sounds that. like an EEOC claim. But anyway, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So I had a very, very difficult time. And then I said to myself, well, let me just dive into like coding, you know, doing this. Um, my son is getting older and older and older. Um, his mother uh, is a nurse. Mm-hmm. And at that point, bless her, she had to work like two jobs and, you know, coming off of her maternity. Like it was just hard. So I'd be at home most of the time with my son and I need something to do to, you know, to, to bring money in. So I just followed the same thing I did in medical school. Open up like a small little business, make like some small web pages and stuff. But then I got connected to actually joining a boot camp mm-hmm. and studied uh, mobile development, iOS development. Yeah. So you have this baby boy mm-hmm. and you're essentially functioning as a stay-at-home dad in a yeah. sense, right? But yeah. building this business mm-hmm. and then you decide to take your coding skills up yeah. to the next level by mm-hmm. doing a boot camp. And what I need people to understand is this mm-hmm. boot camp is not like some little random self-paced class, no. right? Like <laughs> no. that you, you know, these like remote yeah. satellite programs, you can like take a certification. This is hardcore mm-hmm. um, boiler room, learn mm-hmm. how to be a real software engineer. Yep. And how long yep. was the program? So it's a remote program. Mm-hmm. So you could do it from, I did from my uh, my living room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the program is 32 weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a year. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? So Shout out to Ruben Harris and the team at Career Karma. They're like, hey, listen, man, we got this new company called Career Karma. We're going to help people get into and breaking the tech. They already had an amazing podcast called Breaking the Startups. And if you apply to Lambda School, which is the boot camp's name, they may be able to give you a scholarship. Mm. I was like, okay, cool. I got this kid. Like, I need to figure some stuff out. So the scholarship was about $200 a month to go through the program. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll take it. It helps. Man, I had the, I had a great time. I just enjoyed it. Yeah, it was hard. Um, I failed like my first week because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. (laughs) And then like it kind of get better and better. 
And then I retook some classes because once again, I want to understand things, not mm-hmm. just show that I can like regurgitate. And then they hired me. They actually kind of helped teach for some other other classes mm-hmm. while I was going through the job search. Um, and I went through the job search and it took forever and it was hard. And I ended up all the way here in New York City as opposed to San Francisco. <laughs> right. I'm like, you're right there. Yeah. You know, Silicon yeah. Valley, all the jobs in the world, yep. and you end up on the East Coast mm-hmm. working in crypto. You're working in crypto at a cryptocurrency exchange. And what's interesting about that, while I was at medical school, while I was in medical school, I did a presentation. Um, I would always be doing like random presentations like, hey, this is an app that we might need to mm-hmm. integrate to the hospital, this and that. But I was like, hey, guys, we have a lot of loans. Probably should buy some Bitcoin. It's only two hundred dollars. It's net. This yeah, is how it works. This was way back when, when it was two hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. this is how it works. All the computers, and I did it for like my professors and everything. Years later, and actually a year ago, one of my professors was like, "Are you a millionaire? I remember your talk about Bitcoin. I see it all over the news. I'm like, you have to be a genius." I was like, "No, I'm not a millionaire." <laughs> I had to uh, uh, sell some of that to go home and fly back mm-hmm. and forth. Um, but yeah, I just had always been an innovative and a futurist, I guess. Yeah. You know, um, but there's some things about technology that make people very, very uncomfortable, which because it has a lot of gray. And going back to what I said before, I think I'm comfortable in that gray. Right. Super comfortable. Well, you have to be with the life that you've lived. Yeah. Right. You, yeah. you don't get as far as you've gotten without learning how to find peace and remain grounded and very uncertain um, Mm -hmm. or negative, difficult situations. I think also, I think it's about like the personal voice that's inside. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I define what success looks like to me. It's a high bar because my parents kind of pushed me Mm -hmm. to level. But the person inside that talks to me all the time is very affirming. Mm -hmm. It's like, Jarek, you look good today. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, your teeth are kind of crazy, but you got, you know, insurance. Go see a dentist. You know, (laughs) like he's very, he's very goofy. Mm -hmm. Like, and I listen to that guy, you know. Um, and I, the reason I said that is because I learned something about my sister. Um, my sister had cancer and it kind of infiltrated into like her, like behind her eyes mm-hmm. and her eyes became like, um, um, swollen. She had to close them. This is the first time I ever, actually ever saw my sister kind of like sit and be quiet. Um, and she said something to me. She's like, no, Jerry, this is the first time where like the voice inside is calm. And she like, sometimes like my whole life, I never liked what I was saying to myself. That's why she was always out and about mm-hmm. doing certain things. Like she didn't like. And I was like, that's so weird. Cause I never had that. I never understood that, you know? So be very, very careful about what you're saying to yourself and you can change what you say to yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, like when you asked, like, how did I feel when I got kicked out, kicked out of medical school? The worst since I was like, you straight? Yeah. You good? Now, I still had the nightmares. I still had to call. Like, But it was always like, you're good. My mm-hmm. parents were like, my of friends. Course. But I was like, you still good. Mm-hmm. So what does your day-to-day look like now? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's crazy. So I used to wake up at like 5 a.m. or be at the hospital at 5 a.m. I get to the job now, maybe 9.30. Welcome to the <laughs> I used to wear like um, mm-hmm. a slats and like uh, bow ties and a jacket. I wear like jeans and a t-shirt. Um, I'm used to being like the expert. Now I'm like the person that doesn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so it's a hundred percent like flipped on its head. Um, there's definitely there's definitely some areas where tech needs a little bit more diversity. Mm-hmm. I'm one of two only black engineers on the whole floor. Um, company of only 300 people, but I'm like one of the few black engineers. Um, there's different hierarchy in like tech as well. Some people do this better than others. And, you know, I think it's really interesting. When they found out that I was a doctor, they all just kind of like backed up. Right, of course. 
And then they all DM me for like, for like personal health things. <laughs> I was like, what should I do? Like, you know, send me pictures and stuff. But I think that it's it's more so about what I can bring to the company. Mm-hmm. And I be like refreshing and like kind of be supportive. Um, and yeah, I'm a good coder. I can write. I can do all that. But I don't feel like that's what I got hired. I got, I got hired because the two people that um, are the CEO and president, the, they wanted to kind of diversify a little bit. Mm-hmm. And one of them actually stopped me and said, hey, I lost my, I lost my sister a couple years ago um, and you lost yours. How are you dealing with that? Wow. And for somebody at that level, CEO, president, to kind of talk to me was just a junior engineer. That was great. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I sit at my table for about eight hours a day confused and frustrated <laughs> all day. I'm, I'm sure. Because a comma doesn't line up. And, you know, and I'm used to being like knowing what needs to happen. Here are the gold standards, the rules to kind of engineering, just figuring out and mm-hmm. putzing around. But I love that, actually. I love right. putzing around. Like, I love that. And I get paid to do it. So it's cool. It's interesting talking to you about your experience in medicine and understanding your passion there, but mm-hmm. hearing you talk about tech. It's crazy. It's a your, different energy. Your eyes light up in a different yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different energy mm-hmm. because if you were to think about medicine, it's classical. Mm-hmm. Where like, here are the notes on the page and you got to play it like that. Laws, regulations, studies. But with tech, you can almost do anything. And what comes out of it, you don't know. Um, right. If you're a responsible person, you can use that for good. And if you're irresponsible, of course, you can use that for bad. So, yeah, my eyes light up for it because to me, I, I really feel like that's kind of part of the answer to a lot of things that mm-hmm. we're missing. Um, bridging the two. I get excited about health or medicine when I'm in the operating room. That's when you can like, you know. Feel do, the buzz. Seriously. Yeah, feel the buzz. Mm-hmm. You're in the surgery and like you're doing certain things and like, oh, crap, something popping off over here. Let me close this vessel. Like, having, you know, like problem solving skills, like real time, you know. But if I'm like talking to you about um, a chronic disease or something like that, there's only so much I can do. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me the most. Right. You have diabetes. Your toes about to fall off and, you know, you don't really understand what's going on. And I'm like, OK, take this medication. Don't eat this. Yada, yada, yada. Yet you leave the office and you do exactly what I'm supposed to you know, right? You right. do whatever exactly what you want. But what if you had like a, a device in your hand, like a cell phone that knew what was in your refrigerator and before you went to the refrigerator, open up the door and be like, you better not eat that. <laughs> like, seriously, like mm-hmm. it sounds intrusive, but, you know, how can I be that stopgap? How right. can I be like continue that, like, that, that continuous, that continuous care? Um, even some like an app, like a pill reminder, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, you know, like we can't, I just can't do it all. So once again, going back to how I took care of my parents, Flying back and forth, I can't do that as a physician with every patient. Right. And so, how can I bring that same level of care? It's through technology. Mm-hmm. So you've found a career path that you really love, mm-hmm. a job that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, before you get out of here, we're going to talk about like your vision for merging yeah. the two in a more yeah, um, yeah. complex or in depth way later. But um, but this has come at a cost because your son is not here. Oh my right? god. So somebody who grew up with his parents right there, heavily involved, tight, tight-knit family. Mm. How did you make the decision to come here? And how have you been able to cope with the fact that you're not present for your son on a daily basis? That's probably the hardest thing for me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, out of everything, med school, parents, you know, that was hard. But I mean, there was a there's a there's a track for that. Mm-hmm. You know, be there for them, be present, you know, uh, your medicine, like kind of stay on top. Um, when my mother was sick, I had an app. And so when she went to the doctor, I immediately got like, the values. Mm-hmm. And I'll call and see how she's doing. Of course, you can always tell your parents are, but like, just talk to them. My son, 
the only interaction I have with him is like FaceTime, mm-hmm. in which he kind of turns me off to go see Elmo <laughs> on the phone because like he's so sad. And kids don't care. They yeah, like. they don't care. Um, it's hard. Um, I went through the whole process with the company I'm employed with now. I was about to sign the paperwork, and then a huge corporation uh, in Cupertino can't say their name either. But we all have the but devices. It's, Cupertino, so. it's in Cupertino. <laughs> we all have the devices in our pockets. They wanted to interview me for their health team. Mm-hmm. And I went through the interview and it was crazy. It was awesome. Um, but it didn't work out for me at that present moment. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of upset. But then again, I, was, I really wasn't. Because when you work for a corporation like that, there is no work from home. There is no vacation like that's unlimited. Here in, D- uh, here in New York, I have unlimited work from home, unlimited vacation. I can always fly back and forth when I want to at the very last as long as I get my, like, my work done. Um, the company in Cupertino was just closed space. Mm-hmm. So even if I was in California, I may not even have as much time. True. You know? Also, in California, the company, if you wanted to go see a doctor, they had him downstairs. If you wanted to eat, the cafeteria is here. Self, everything's self-contained because <laughs> exactly. you're not leaving. Basically. You're not leaving. If you want to go run an exercise, it's right in the middle of the company. It's, it's like kind of like a, a spaceship mm-hmm. kind of a building. Um, and here in New York, I'll just go out, leave the office and walk for an hour. And just see people and, and get some of the vibe in New York City and get a bagel or just go to the gym or, or you know, so I needed that. Um, and because it's unlimited work from home and limited vacation, I fly back and forth. Yesterday, I just bought two round trip tickets. Mm. I miss my son. I see him at least uh, every couple of weeks, three, four weeks. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm making enough money now to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I miss it, man. I'm sure. I want him to be on the East Coast with me more. Uh, it, it's it's challenging. His mother and I have a great relationship. Shout out to her. And it's really about being honest mm-hmm. and being clear um, and being kind so we can like get our schedules together. But yeah, I never envisioned that that would be my life to be separated from my, my, my child. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think my son's mom even understood that. People really understand that. Like I've lost so many people. I'm right. not trying to leave another family member. Mm-hmm. But daddy got to do what he got to do. Right. Absolutely. For for his future as for well. For his future. Yeah. Um, so this question, because this whole story has been an answer to this question, <laughs> but I, I warned you, we, sure, we, have yeah. to, we have to ask it. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Man, I remember um, when I was in school, we were on the ICU and this patient was actively dying and it was my turn of my election to do the chest compressions. Mm. And I worked so hard on those chest compressions that I saved his life. Wow. And everybody was like, good job, good job. Um, and then in my heart, I was like, yeah, but my dad's dying and I can't save him or my mother. And so I literally just kind of like, thanks. And I went around the corner, just bawled. I was just like, like the utter feeling of like the dichotomy of like saving lives and like that's what you're meant to do and like you have the power to do that but you can't save somebody that you really want mm-hmm. like that was hard and I remember that because I probably um, was <laughs> working so hard on that patient because of what I wanted to actually happen in my life right you know but you know that's kind of like when you're in medicine I'm not the only person in medicine that's had that feeling I mean my classmates, they went to divorces, they lost their children, they've had families that have passed. Like, it's tough, man. Yeah. But that, for me, was, like, kind of, like, damn. Like, this power that you have is still kind of, like, if you call it power, it's more of, like, an uncomfortable feeling or just an awareness. Like, you can save somebody but can't 
it's it's not all wielding. Like you, you know, right. it's limitation. And I always feel that way when doctors get sick, like yeah. terminally <laughs> ill. Like yeah. you're putting so much out into into the world to help save people. Yeah. And like now this is your mm-hmm. your fate. I actually never finished that book when breath becomes air. Oh, I need to read because it. Because it was just too much. I was like, I got like halfway through it. I was like, I'm gonna have to yeah. revisit this at some point. Yeah. Um amazing prose, but it was just like this. Is a bit too heavy it's a little, for me. It's heavy. Yeah, it's heavy. for sure. Um, following up on that, like the patient got better, walked out the hospital, parents and family members like all happy, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, yo, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. But another moment that was actually interesting, kind of like on the other side, is my mother's birthday, uh, June 3rd. And that was when I delivered the first child by myself. Wow. So I delivered a child on June 3rd and it was a baby girl. And it was like right after my mom died in April, the 22nd. And I was just like, holy crap. Like, so it's like, it's the good and the right, bad, right? Right. There's always that dichotomy yes. in life. Yeah. So it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. But it was what's interesting to me is after everything that you've been through, and I'm saying this particularly as a black man, yeah. um, because there's this this idea that many of us in the black community, but specifically black men, have not given been given the space mm. to process their pain mm-hmm. um, and really resolve issues with trauma and past experiences and be a healthy, mm-hmm. emotionally healthy yeah. individual. Um, so to see you having like been through this this much, but genuinely radiate joy yeah. is impressive. Well, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really about community. It's mm-hmm. kind of like what you're doing right now. Um, having people listening to podcasts and, and feeling like there's a glimmer of hope out mm-hmm. there that somebody has gone through this and I can relate to it and I'll be okay. I mean, that's kind of like where it starts. My faith is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But then I have tons of friends that have helped me out. You know, a lot of my friends are doctors. And so, yes, when I'm poor, I'd be like, hey, can I borrow some money? <laughs> <laughs> and like, they, they, they help me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then even before that, like, even my friends were in medical school and I was out. I'd be like, hey, can I borrow some or can I do this? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, can you help me write this letter? I will say that you kind of have to demand things in life, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you know that you're dealing with something that might be a little bit over your head, Mm -hmm. um, you have to demand that you fight for yourself and get the help that you need. I mean, demand going to the gym, demand having an audience with the pastor or a health professional, demand having that talk with your significant other, um, demand being honest, because there's only one way through this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, you have to go through it. You can't, like, the more, I mean, the more you try to, like, self-medicate, and which everybody does, I do, but the more you try to, like, den- uh, be in denial about stuff, like, the more it just piles up. Absolutely. And at some point, it's going to bubble over. It's going to bubble over, It's man. going to happen. It's going to bubble over. And I'm, I, I don't think that I'm, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think that I have found, like, any secret sauce to kind of get over anything. I just know that I build up my disciplines to a certain level that when I feel uncomfortable and I went to go, I know what to do mm-hmm. next. So in medical school, when I was feeling like overwhelmed, it was just too classical and like too rigid. And like this rigidity is like, I can't imagine this just like being my whole life. I would go to a tech conference, mm-hmm. you know, um, when I felt like that wasn't enough, I would go to the studio. My, my, classmates who are musicians would perform something or like recording things. I would make some beats on my computer and put them on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Like just stupid corny stuff. Finding that balance though in those yeah. outlets. Yeah. So for for especially for black men, that's why music is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it gives them a sense of poetry. It's set to music to like express themselves. Clothing clothing is a big deal. Relationship, basketball, sports. Um, but demand 
certain things out of your life. And when you demand it, you manifest that. And they'll come. Before I moved to New York, I just kept on dreaming about New York for some reason. Mm. I wanted to be in a big city. I wanted to have more, more, uh, more vibrations and like just meet more people. And here I am sitting next to you talking on the mic. It's crazy. It's it's, it's crazy. I mean, the, this whole situation that you got here <laughs> is crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but looking ahead, now let me just say you are committed to your employer. You want to mm-hmm. make that yes, clear, yeah. right? Working there to build uh, with them. But in a perfect world, what does your life look like in terms of the intersection of technology and medicine and what you put out, your output as a professional? 100%. So like I said, I was from a town of a thousand people. Mm-hmm. We only had like maybe one or two doctors in the town. Um, and even though my parents were teachers, I mean, they didn't make a lot of money, but we ate healthy and we were fine. But there are millions of Americans out there, no matter if you live in a small town or a big town, that do not have access to healthcare mm-hmm. or proper healthcare. Um, and so my big dream is to be like in charge of a healthcare company or VP of product or whatever that label is that allows for that intersection of people without healthcare to meet healthcare and, and to kind of bridge that. So my idea of doing it is through mobile devices, mm-hmm. through the iPhones, through the Googles, um, through telemedicine. Um, I had this idea maybe when I was like 10 and we didn't have cell phones at that time. Mm-hmm. I was just like, yo, what if I could see a doctor through the television? Like, so I've always been thinking about that. Um, so that's kind of how, like what I want to do and become an expert in that field. It pays well, I hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more so of just kind of going through the whole uh, vein of our conversation. I want to be able to help people the same way I helped and was intimate like with my parents. Yeah. And it seems like it's a lofty goal. Right. But I think it can be done Mm -hmm. in time. So one of the last things I want to focus on Mm -hmm. is these decisions, professional decisions and going to law school and deciding to do something else. Mm -hmm. There's a cost. Oh, my God. Both literally and figuratively. And you mentioned the borrowing and the borrowing and the borrowing. Um, and now you're in a whole different profession. I'm a whole right? different profession. Which it has unlimited earning potential sure. as well. And because people just think you have to be a doctor to be rich, right? Mm. But but the weight of now the debt that has come with the decisions that you made academically, do you feel oppressed by that? I'm upset about it. It makes mm-hmm. me upset because like if I want to buy a couple, I would I would rather just like buy all the tickets to see my son like mm-hmm. in one go and buy them all non-refundable. I don't have a credit card that would even give me that type of limit to mm-hmm. do, right? I still have medical school loans I got to pay back. I got to pay back my boot camp. Mm-hmm. I send money uh, home to my son so he can still go to the gym and, you know, do whatever he needs to do. Um, and I owe, I'll say it because I said on the last podcast, I owe almost $670,000 in debt and I'm strapped. When you, so when you mentioned that, I was in my kitchen, right? <laughs> I have my big headphones on and just like when I do my recon, mm-hmm. I'm like cleaning the kitchen mm-hmm. or whatever. And I literally stopped in my tracks, like, oh, because I mean, I, I know from yeah. putting myself through law school, I know, we know the numbers. It's like mm-hmm. a house. Yep. But it was so much more than I had so ever much. heard that I literally stopped and was just like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it didn't start off that way, mm-hmm. but the interest and the, the interest and all of it. And trying to maintain and trying to mm-hmm. keep your sanity and that go crazy. Um, but then it kind of goes once again, once again, it goes back to how I view myself. Mm-hmm. Like if I if I literally was just sitting here in this chair and thought about everything that I had done and the what ifs, mm-hmm. right? So say I want to compare myself with one of my friends who lives in Atlanta. All right. I have a huge house. Three stores, I think maybe 20,000 square feet. And he, I think he might be a millionaire. And they got two Porsches, blah, blah, blah. Like, 
I'll kill myself. Literally, figuratively speaking, like, because I could be like, oh, that could be me. But it would kill my spirit. That's right. what I'm really saying. Right. It would kill my spirit. So you have to recognize that some things are for different people, right? I have a friend that has everything he wants in the world and is still not happy, mm-hmm. right? Yet when I see my son jumping on the trampoline, like there's like a exuberance. I love that. So it's all about understanding who you are. It's a lot of money that I owe back. But I'm also very, very, <laughs> I can I just say adamant? And I'm not even that intelligent. I'm just adamant to pay that off somehow, mm-hmm. somewhere. And I think that one day, I'll probably just like write a check and be like, whoop. But I'm done and done. Be done. But I probably won't want that check before I also put money in my son's coffers. Right. Maybe even right. the same amount. Like, boop. Write the check and then tour the country on a motivational <laughs> exactly. speaking tour about how you wrote the check. Right. It's, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So it's... It's one of those things where, again, I have no choice but to define my life. Mm -hmm. I can't call my mom and my dad for, like, reassurance. I can't call my sister to laugh with. You know, sometimes I try to even get contact with my son right now to see his face, and he turns him out to see Elmo. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying, like, you have to know who you are and demand certain things from yourself. You only have today, right? My life is very simple. I wake up with three things. Today, I woke up. Number one was to do this. Mm-hmm. All right? That was it. We're doing it now. Number two, get some food. Number three, maybe go to a museum. That's it. Very, very simple, manageable, keep stress level down. Tomorrow, I open up my computer and stare at it and try to figure out. I give myself two hours, and then that's it. Like, it's just very... And then after that, I play my guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, All-Star Weekend, you know, watch again. So do not have your life defined by anybody else, the people you scroll on Instagram or the grades that people think you should get. The only people I allowed that in my life are my parents. They won the 4.0, so I did it. Mm-hmm. That, that's a great place to end because I'm just <laughs> like, where do you, you know, where do you really, really go from there? But listen, this was awesome. I knew it was yeah. going to be. Um, I, and I, I think you're a walking example of faith and grit and being adamant. Yeah. Um, and no matter what is happening. And, and also, too, I think one of the lessons that I'm taking away from here, we take things at face value. And a lot of people, would, when Howard would have said, you got to go, mm-hmm. and someone looked you in the face, that Dean said, you're never going to be oh, a yeah. doctor. Many people would have internalized mm-hmm. that and said, well, they didn't want me, and they'll never want me again, and nobody's mm-hmm. going to want me. Yeah. But consistently making the call until they gave you another shot, and maximizing that shot in spite of everything that you were going through personally yeah. is a testament to... We, we write our own story, and, and God can have plans for us, sure. but you have to do your part. You got to do your part. And, and if you do your part, he will meet you, and opportunities will pre- present themselves, and things will come full circle. And it's it can take years to feel that, like there's resolution. Mm-hmm. It's It may take some time for the debt piece to resolve mm-hmm. itself, for you to be in the same city as your son, mm-hmm. et cetera. It's all a journey, but that— being adamant piece is is something that I'm I'm taking away from this for sure. I appreciate it. I mm-hmm. appreciate it. And you know, I'll just say this like your podcast is like a beacon of hope, man. Like it's cool. Thank like you. you learn so many things about different people mm-hmm. and how they how they how they navigate. Um to that point about that doctor said I was gonna be a surgeon mm-hmm. or a doctor. Um she was there when I got back into school. And the doctor was like, what are you doing here? My mom was like, he shouldn't have never left in the first place. 
<laughs> I mean, so you have champions, right? right? You right. know, you have champions. And so it's I'm here because people have championed for mm-hmm. me. They are still champion for me. You and your brother and this podcast, you guys are champions for me. And we can be champions for others. So it's paying it for it. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. where can people find you online? Absolutely. So my Twitter handle is jwarrenmd. You guys follow me there. I'm on LinkedIn, I guess, at jerk.warren. Don't send them a message, though. <laughs> so, yeah, I, can't. I don't really check my social media at work. I'm sorry. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, uh, jerk.warren on Instagram. I just got a new page, too. Um, but, yeah, feel free to email me, jerk.warren at Gmail. Um, everything. Just type in jerk, you'll find me. Jerk Warren. You'll find me on anywhere. Um, and I would love to hear from everybody. You know, I do respond. In time. No, I didn't take it personally at all because I knew DeMarcus would find you. I was like, oh, I'll just try on LinkedIn. Yeah. And if I can't find him, DeMarcus will. So I didn't feel a way. I'm just yeah. busting your chops. <laughs> but to our audience, even those who may have questions about medical school yeah. and that whole thing. Let's talk about I'm it. I'm just volunteering your, no, your seriously, advice seriously. and guidance. Like, I, I really want this to be 100% like um, pro-medicine. Because, mm-hmm. yes, I've switched jobs and careers. But if you're interested in medicine, like, let's, let's, let's talk. Let's wrap it up, you know? Like, I had an amazing time. I still love medicine. I, yeah. s- I still study. Absolutely. I was studying medicine last night. So listen, reach out. If you have questions, reach out to Jarek and ask them. Clearly, he's got a story to tell and some lessons and, and guidance and jewels that I'm sure he could drop. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, promote it, do all those things. We don't have a show without you. I know I repeat that often, but it's true. And remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 